All right, so back for another cutting room floor. And this time we're sort of shifting from the end of Judges. I think it's the last line of Judges says, there was no king and everyone was doing right what was in their own eyes. And you have this sense entering 1 Samuel, man, that a king would really help mm -hmm. things out. Yeah. Right, and we know that as 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings develop, there are kings. Mm -hmm. yeah. But we also know Israel goes into exile. For sure. Uh, and then as readers of the New Testament, we sort of have this sense of like, okay, so how are we supposed to read mm -hmm. this transition yeah. from judges to into the era of the kings? Sure. Like, how are we supposed to make sense of that in light of Jesus in the New Testament? For sure. Yeah, I think this is a really important conversation, especially thinking about as we're entering into Samuel as a church. One thing to, a couple, I guess, preliminary things to point out is that in the Hebrew Bible, Samuel is the book that comes after Judges. So these are just, yeah. it's back to back right there. Um, and what's, I think, interesting about that is Samuel itself, both First and Second Samuel as we have it, was originally one book in, in its original form. And this is actually fairly important to get like this idea of how the king structure works mm. within it. And why this is important is that when you look at Samuel, First and Second as a whole, uh, kind of what you see like from the macro structure of it is that early on in the beginning in, in chapter one, uh, into chapter two, you have this poem, Hannah's Prayer, yeah. that has a lot of messianic or kingly kind of overtones yeah. throughout. Like the king and the anointed and one. The anointed one, yes, yeah. in that poem right there. Right in the middle of the book, which is actually the first chapter of Second Samuel, David has a poem where he's lamenting the death of Saul and Jonathan. Mm. And in that poem, right in the middle, there's a ton of messianic and kingly kind of anointed language in there as well. And then to close the book, at the end of 2 Samuel, there's two or three poems that David writes hmm. towards the end of his death that also look forward with messianic expectations. So people hmm. kind of look at this structure and see these key poems, beginning, middle, and end, as kind of like these anchor points to kind of see how the story will develop uh, with this language of like anointing or king or anything kind of in that kind of ballpark yeah. of these ideas. It's just kind of interesting that you have these like poems that mm -hmm. are shaping the themes, and yet the book is named after a guy yes. who's said a who's said to judge yeah, Israel. For sure. So like the name kind of creates more continuity back with judges yes, almost. Totally. And it's Samuel himself as kind of a character and as, as the actual person, more or less is one way to look at it. It's kind of like this bridge figure between the time of the judges. He's considered primarily like the last judge. He's yeah. also named a prophet. And this transition figure that points forward to this this kingly the mm. monarchy within Israel. Okay. And it's kind of like setting this expectation of this transition within the first it's like six or seven chapters yeah. that are primarily focused on Samuel. Yeah. That kind of gear us kind of looking forward to primarily in the book of Samuel, uh, the reigns of Saul and David and then Got a little it. bit of, of, of Absalom. Yeah. Um, so I think just kind of those three poems, having those kind of in the back of your head is important. And then also recognizing that, I just briefly mentioned this, but the kings that are given the most sort of airtime, if you will, are going to be Saul and David, and then a little bit of Absalom. And what, I think just kind of having those names in the back of your head is really important. So three poems, two kings, and then really what this is all gearing up towards, and I think what we'll talk the most here, is this kind of messianic or kingly hope. And we can talk about those words uh, okay. in a moment here. Yeah. Um, but just kind of lay some groundwork there. I, I just was uh, hoping to have people have that framework of these three poems in the literary structure. Okay the primary kings that are talked about, Saul, David, and then Absalom. Okay. Um, and then all of that kind of coalescing or kind of being funneled into this theme of messianic or kingly mm. sort of hope. Okay. Um, so those three anchor points. But um, before we kind of go any further, I wanted to also kind of talk about these words, Messiah or Mashiach, yeah. and then Christ or Christos. We yeah. use them a lot, in, even in our Sunday teaching, 
um, for good reasons. They're really important words, but I think it might be helpful just to have, yeah. like, what are we actually talking about with these, with these words? Well, I think it's especially important because some of us, I think, think Christ is Jesus's last, last name. name. Yes. Right. Totally, so you're like, yeah. Jesus Christ, you know, like Tony Trayback, totally, exactly. Aaron yeah. Maddox. Totally. You know? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, but what you're saying is actually... Christos is very similar to Mashiach. Mashiach, yes. Yeah, and so let me, let's start with uh, Mashiach or, or Messiah is how we, we say it. And this comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, um, from the root for, it's the word that means like to smear or to pour liquid. Hmm. So kind of like in its original form, uh, before any sort of like kingly or, or like how we would think of it as Christians, Messiah type yeah. ling like lingo. Um, the root, and what I mean by root is in the Hebrew, the words are often made up of three kind of consonants. Yeah. And that root, that where we get the word Mashiach, uh, was originally talked about the pouring or the smearing of liquid uh, on someone or something. And is that how it sort of translates into this idea of the anointed? The anointed one, exactly. Right. Uh. So Mashiach is the noun where we get this idea of the anointed one. And so mm. often... The one who is smeared. The one who is smeared, the one where something or some liquid poured is poured. Up. And mm. so we'll talk about this as we go along and maybe even in the next uh, kind of conversation we have is that you have these instances early on in the Old Testament where in particular Aaron, the priest, mm -hmm. and getting a little bit ahead of, of ourselves here, but Aaron is Mashiach or anointed mm. with, with liquid. And so there's this resemblance here. Um, David himself will be anointed. That liquid will be poured oh, yeah. on him. Uh, later when he is anointed uh, king. So that that kind of lingo with the association with Mashiach, where we'll eventually get our idea of like king, and with this pouring of liquid, having those two things kind of merge together in our brains, I think is is important. Hmm. So that's on the Hebrew side. Okay. Um, so when you kind of move into the New Testament, yep. you'll still see that language of Messiah translated just because of, of our English. But if you were to do... And to kind of just spare you, like the we can spare like all the details of it, of of what we're talking about as far as the lingo or the background is. Um, but with Christos, what that essentially is is the Greek word for the Hebrew Messiah, Messiah or Mashiach. Okay. So like you know, a few hundred years later, a few hundred years before the time of Jesus, when the Old Testament scriptures were translated into Greek, Mashiach was used or Christos was used to translate Messiah or Mashiach. Mm. And so there's essentially to kind of boil it down are the same idea. Okay. So Mashiach or Christos or Christ, and the same idea. It's talking about this anointed one. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we come to, say, 1 Samuel, when we look at the prayer that we talked about or you talked, taught on on Sunday of Hannah. So, yeah, verse, I think it's two, chapter 2, verse 10. Chapter 2, verse 10, right? Yeah. And so he will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. And I think looking at this, just taking a few moments to really look at, this is that word anointed is this idea of Mashiach or Messiah. Mm -hmm. And the first time it's used in the book of Samuel, and it becomes this really key um, idea or this key theme that really is going to set the stage for the rest of the book. Because when you look at Hannah's poem, what you're seeing are two kind of parallel lines okay. back to back. Mm -hmm. So he will give strength to his king. Okay and will exalt the horn of his anointed. So is that like an example of like Hebrew parallelism? Parallelism, exactly, okay. right? So the line line A and line B are kind of mutually informing yeah. and interpreting one another. And so this is now where you get this idea of the Mashiach, mm. the anointed figure, the and anointed king, king. anointed king, and how these two ideas are now mm. coalescing merging. and merging together uh, right within uh, Hannah's poem. So what you're saying is like, sometimes we think of the king and the Messiah as separate terms. Mm -hmm. But sometimes in a Hebrew parallelism yeah. and in these poems, they'll do one line and the next line, and they're basically riffing and reinforcing each other. Exactly. Even though the language is different. The exactly. And so this is where I think it's helpful when 
you're looking at specific words, not to just be limited by those specific words, but how those words are mutually interacting and talking okay. with one another. And so there's yeah. overlapping themes and ideas where word studies are helpful, but I think theme studies, how these I, w simple words are interacting with That's one great. another is also super helpful. Um, but looking back at Hannah's song, and I think this is where you, there's just a ton packed in to Hannah's poem that kind of riffs off this king idea. Uh, so Hannah's first line, chapter 2, verse 1 of 1 Samuel, uh, Hannah literally says, my horn is high in the Lord. Now, it's often translated, my horn is, is high or exalted in the Lord. And then the very last line of Hannah's poem is this, she says, he will raise high the horn of his anointed. Now, now we have this language of horn being kind of thrown in here with this idea of anointed. Mm. Now, this might seem like we're going sidetracked here. Yeah. We'll bring it back to this King Messiah thing okay. uh, in a moment. But we need to talk a little bit about this idea of horn hmm. in kind Just, of understanding. When I was thinking we were going to talk about kings and messiahs, <laughs> yeah. horn was not in there. Not I'm part curious of it. where this will go. You go. So like, think of like a horn. And here's maybe an example, Psalm 92, verse 10. You have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. So thinking of like, you know, this powerful animal, this beast. Mm -hmm. uh, my horn is exalted like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. So mm -hmm. this is the psalmist in Psalm 92.10 referencing like this powerful animal who has these horns that, you know, symbolize strength and just power mm -hmm. and this language of you have poured over me fresh oil so again these ideas are merging so it's kind of a parallel is exactly kind of yeah merging to get together again so when hannah is saying my horn is high in the lord this is right after she's just experienced all that that trauma and that devastation mm. and going through that agony of praying to god not receiving yeah. a child and finally has received a child she says at the beginning of her poem, my horn is high in the Lord. Mm. So it's this place of being to lifted to power. It's this place of you know, exaltation. It's this mm. place of kind of being established by the Lord. And then she closes her poem with this line, he will raise high the horn of his anointed. Now, verse 10 is, is in the future. He will raise high mm. the horn of his anointed. So what God has just done for Hannah by raising her up, by giving her this elevated status, giving her power with this language of horn, is something that God will do for his anointed. Hmm. Now, remember that language of anointed goes back to the idea of Mashiach, yeah. Messiah. So it's this king language. So again, we have all this kind of overlapping language of poor, anoint, horn, all sort yeah. of uh, over overlapping. So maybe to boil this down is to kind of see the connections here. Hannah can portray herself as having her horn high and lifted up, mm -hmm. elevated status. Hannah can also express that same language for what God will do one day with the future anointed king. Uh, and then here's what becomes really interesting. As you continue reading on in 1 Samuel, it's probably no coincidence that the next time the word horn is used is for the anointing of David, hmm. not Saul. So s both of them are anointed. So that language of Mashiach, or the verb there, is used for both Saul, David, and Absalom. But David is the only one who has the language of being anointed with a horn. Hmm. So it, there's this, it's very subtle there, but I think the writer of Samuel is trying to tell us something because we know that the kingly line that the Messiah will come from is the line of David, okay. not from the line of Saul. Uh, so it is interesting to note that, yes, while Saul and Absalom are both anointed with uh, oil or they're, they're anointed as a kind of Mashiach figures, they're not anointed with this horn, the words they're Karen in, in Hebrew, mm -hmm. if anyone is interested in yeah, that. Yeah, I really care. Yeah, I really yeah. care. Um, 
<laughs> but this brings us back to like what Hannah's song is doing. Remember, there's these three poems in the book of Samuel, and this all three of them have messianic, kingly sort of mm. expectations built into them. And Hannah's poem is kind of getting us to look forward to this anointed one who will be anointed kind of with this language of horn, power, establishment. Mm. And that's unique just to David and what will come from him and, and his family. Um, so Hannah, basically to sum this up, Hannah has tied the true anointed one with the one who will have his horn lifted up and be anointed, you know, by the, this horn. And that's David. That's David, exactly. And when you think about this, kind of merging this back to what you had talked about on Sunday yeah. with this, this language of you were really highlighting uh, verse 15 of chapter one, pouring your soul out, pouring your heart mm. out to the Lord and seeing that there's this kind of reciprocal relationship here um, between how Hannah is talking about the future Messiah, one who will be, be, be poured, poured on, be poured <laughs> on exactly. And how Hannah has just herself poured herself out to the Lord, hmm. poured herself out before God. And how it's very specific how David, who will have, again, oil poured on yeah. him and be anointed, Hannah has done this kind of in a different sort of way, hmm. poured her heart, poured her soul out before God. We see, I think, there's this, even in Hannah's pouring out in chapter one, and, and it really continues thematically yeah. in chapter two, it's this way where Hannah is acknowledging that the true king is not going to necessarily be this human figure, but mm. is going to be God himself. Because Hannah is the one the, pouring... The one getting poured on. Yeah, he, Hannah is pouring her her emotions, her heart, her heartache out before the mm. Lord and saying that there is going to be this true anointed one to come who, yes, will be the king, who will, you know, David, so on and so forth. But I think that's all meant to get us to keep looking forward. Mm. And so kind of when, I was, when we were thinking so about this... So let me this, slow down for a yeah, second. Totally, let me yeah. just make sure I understand what you're saying. You're saying like... So one of the things Hannah did, right, was she poured out, and I sort of even said, like, imagine it's a pitcher. Yeah, totally, yeah. Pouring it out, like, at the throne of God. Yeah, yeah. And you're saying, in her prayer, she's sort of almost prophesying, looking forward to this day when the anointed, the one who is poured on, mm -hmm. who will be the king, will come. And you're saying, oh, when you read the New Testament, you should think, that's Jesus. That's Jesus, exactly, He's yes. the one who she poured out, to yes. and who all of Israel and God's people have poured upon yes. in their prayer. And now he's rising up as the king. As the king, exactly. Wow. And I think there's there's That's this, powerful. It's super powerful because I think about like I just was thinking about and maybe this isn't like theologically precise or whatnot, but thinking about really how this might land for us. When because I, I thought you did a phenomenal job talking about like what it means for us to pour ourselves out before the Lord. There's a way where I was thinking about this this morning, kind of thinking about this conversation we we're gonna have. That perhaps like one way to look at this is that as we do that, pour ourselves out before God, it's a way of really acknowledging that God is truly the anointed one. Mm. He's truly the king that we're all longing for. Mm. And that to go anywhere else is, you know, essentially foolish for mm. one. Um, but we're not truly acknowledging the kingship, the messiahship of Jesus, who it truly is the king, if we're not pouring ourselves out before him, because he is the one who has mm. been anointed. He is God's anointed one. Um, but that's kind of just kind of all, you know, to the side yeah. to a certain extent there. Um, when we kind of really bring this all in, in the book of Samuel, what we're going to keep seeing as we progress, you know, on Sundays with our teaching and whatnot, is that yes, Saul, he becomes the first king of Israel, but real quickly we find out that he has his own flaws, his own failures. And that story really ends in a tragedy. Yeah. And really as Saul is declining, if you will, there's the rise of David. 
Mm-hmm. And what you end up having, if you can imagine as you're listening to this, kind of kind of two kind of arches that ascend and then descend. Mm. So first you have Saul's the first one who ascends. Yeah. He has moments of victory, moments of promise, and he begins to descend. And as Saul is descending, you have at that almost that same time, David begins his ascension to become king. And really, for the most part, most Christians, I think, and you know, for good reasons, have a very positive portrait of David and perhaps a negative portrait of Saul. But doesn't David kind of descend too? Exactly. So that's that's my point. Doesn't Solomon kind of have that same? Totally. Yes. And so what you have is these kind of you know up and downs for all these kings. And really, as you get on, there really is no ascending for a lot of these kings. They just go through like you know they become king and it's a straight descent. (laughs) They did evil in the eyes. Exactly. Yes. So even someone like David, who is a man after God's own heart, he has these great moments. He has these moments where he ascends, but shortly after, you know, with the story of Bathsheba, which we'll get to in a couple months, Uriah Uriah the Hittite, really, it just becomes a train wreck after that. And so Samuel is the book is itself is portraying that, yes, there is this longing for this anointed one, but all these figures that come onto this scene, they're trying to fill this portrait, fill this gap. And some get it right more than others. And some really don't get it right way more than others. Yeah. But it's all sort of fulfilling or meant to bring this sort of anticipation for the fulfillment that someone like Hannah is praying and prophesying and longing for in her pouring out uh, before the Lord. So thanks, man. That's great.